Prince of Peace. Can you say Prince of Peace? Do you guys know what a prince is? Mm-hmm. What's a prince? Um, somebody who helps lead. Mm -hmm. It has a crown on it. <laughs> Do you know what a princess is? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a girl. <laughs> it's a girl. It's a girl. So what's a prince then? A boy. <laughs> a boy. So Jesus is also the prince of peace. Do you guys know what peace means? Peace. Peace. What's peace mean? Hmm. I don't know. But she must know. Peace like a good thing. Being calm and just saying. <laughs> That's a good job. Exactly plumbing theological depths, but incredibly cute. And they do give us a stark reminder that Jesus is in fact a boy. So that was helpful. Thanks for coming. First significant snowfall of the year, so now it looks very Christmas-esque, beautiful. In the Old Testament, we'd refer to you as the remnant, those who are charged with carrying the word and the church forward because you braved the weather to be here. So I appreciate it. Uh, let's try something different this morning. How about this? Turn to your neighbor, have a discussion, and uh, talk about this. I have a question on the screen for you. The question is this, what is something you really want? Like, what is something you truly desire in life? It's Christmas. We're thinking about that. Gifts, that kind of thing. So take a few seconds, turn to your neighbor, and talk. Okay, okay. We could chat all morning, I know. Well, let's bring it back. You guys are like settling a room of junior high students. The other question I could have asked to discuss is, what's your favorite Christmas song, Christmas carol, or Christmas hymn, or Maybe I could have asked, what's your least favorite? So I'm going to make illustration of this because I have a Christmas song. It speaks about what they think we really want this Christmas season. It's not a fan favorite of mine. Um, I, I did ask the worship team if they would have perhaps opened or led with this at some point. Uh, they didn't even give me audience to that. So the song this morning, one of my least favorites is Santa Baby. Listen to what they have to say. Santa Baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby, and hurry down the chimney tonight. So it's like this, like this Marilyn Monroe-esque kind of 50s crooner sort of jazzy song. Uh, Tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's like this woman who's kind of trying to seduce Santa to give her the things that she thinks she really wants, right? Santa baby, a 54 convertible to light blue. I'll wait up for you, dear, Santa baby. Santa baby, I want a yacht. And really, that's not a lot. Been an angel all year, Santa baby. So you got in your head. You're singing this all afternoon, aren't you? It just gets worse. Santa, honey, there's one thing I really do need, the deed to a platinum mine. Santa baby, hurry down the chimney tonight. Santa baby, I'm filling my stocking with the duplex and check. Sign your X on the line. Santa cutie. Come and trim my Christmas tree with some decorations. Bought at Tiffany. I really do believe in you. Let's see if you believe in me. Santa baby forgot to mention one little thing a ring. 
I don't mean a phone, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. I heard another pastor use this as an illustration. He loved the song. I don't. But it makes the point, and, and it's this. Are these the things that we really want? Like, are those the things that we really do desire? Is that we think about like a 54 convertible and uh, a stocking with duplex and checks just signed on the X and, and, and decorations bought at Tiffany, a ring, and I don't mean a phone? I think if we're probably in agreement, and I'm speaking on your behalf as well, we would agree those really aren't the things that we want. I mean, those really aren't the things that we truly desire in life. So as a pastor, we do counseling. Pastoral counseling happens. People come into our office and they seek advice and counsel and biblical direction. And uh, if I'm being really frank and honest with you, I've never had someone come into my office when they're in the middle of a crisis and things are falling apart and make this confession and say, do you know what I really need? I need jewelry. I've never heard that. It's never been stated. Or if I could just get a, a, just a new car, everything will turn out just as I want. If I only had the money to do that reno at home, uh, it would be just fine. I've never heard someone say, if I could have a brand new 2019 Harley-Davidson motorcycle, that would be music to my ears. I might affirm them, but I've never heard that kind of thing. I might even say that. What I have heard the kinds of confessions that come out of people's mouths in those moments is this. When the wheels fall off, people say things like this. What I really, really need is hope. Like what I truly long for is a sense of peace in my life. It's just, it's out of control. I need rest. People say, where's justice? Can you just let me know that things are going to be all right. Those are the things that we hear. There's nothing like crisis to give us clarity in life, is there? To strip away the fluff, the stark reality, get down to bare bones, expose those real desires and longings of the human heart. Isn't that what the message of this book is actually all about? Isn't that what the message of Christianity is about. Isn't that what the message of this season of Christmas is all about? That the things that we truly want, we really long for, and we really desire that those things are made available to us because God knows our situation. Because God knows the circumstances in our life. He really does. He knows the condition of our heart. He knows our pain. <clears throat> He knows our woundedness, our heartache. He knows our emptiness. He knows our grief and our dereliction and our sorrow. He knows our hunger. And he is aware of the reality of this stuff in your life and the cause of it. And he is fully committed to the eradication of that stuff. That's what 2,000 years ago is about. So we have a guiding verse through our series that we're talking about. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, but I want to rewind to verse 2. You can listen. It's on the top of your bulletin if you want to follow along. This is from the CSB Christian Standard Bible, and this is what it says. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned, for unto us a child will be born. 
A son will be given to us, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. <coughs> Excuse me. So we are in a series this morning called The Thrill of Hope. And it's a four-week series where we're looking at uh, the four names of Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 6, um, that tell us about who God is. Last week, Pastor Dave preached about um, Wonderful counselor, that God is our wonder filled, our wonder filling, full of wonder, our counselor, the wisdom of God for us. And today, actually, we're talking about Prince of Peace. And so we're going to bookend this series. So why are we shuffling the deck? Well, to be uh, honest again and, and, and frank with you, um, Pastor Doug Schneider was going to preach today, and it was going to be on Almighty God, and um, his mom passed away over Thanksgiving weekend. And so in order to relieve some of that pressure, we shuffle the deck, and so I'm stepping in for him this Sunday, but we decided to keep uh, the names that we were assigned, uh, just for a sense of ease, knowing that you're flexible, we'll be fine, things are gonna work out. And so today we're gonna be talking about Prince of Peace. And here's our direction. We're gonna um, look at the context of the passage, and um, the tension that arises within the context of it, look at the resolution for that tension, and then make application. And so if you would join me, um, we should pray, and then we will jump into the text. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity that we could be here. Lord, we are so grateful for your word, for the Logos and for the Christos. Lord, your word is what directs us. It gives us life and direction. And as I am convinced at the end of this time, it is what we truly desire and what we will truly need. So we ask for your spirit to be present here and to be with us and to help us to hear what you have for us. We're excited um, to hear the good news. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Rick. I'm dry this morning. I know, but I'm going to move the pulpit. <clears throat> I just do. I just jump around. So what's going on? What's happening um, at the time of Isaiah chapter 9? Because text without context is pretext. Something was happening. Isaiah is a real person. He's writing to a real audience in a real time, and there are real historical events that were happening. And so if we're going to talk about the Prince of Peace, we have to think about the tyranny of war, because that was the setting. <clears throat> and so... Um, we have to have a little history lesson. So if history isn't your thing, I'm really sorry. Um, go ahead and put the earbuds in, catch up on your Netflix, uh, do a little YouTubing, grab a cup of coffee, but we have to spend some time looking at the history of the time. For some of you, that's pretty exciting stuff. I kind of like it. And so here we go. Um, after King Solomon, uh, the king of, of Israel, the promised land, uh, the land was divided into two nations to two kingdoms. And so Israel was to the north. It was the ten tribes. Judah was to the south. It was two tribes. And practically speaking, the kings of Judah waffled between, uh, waffled between being righteous and wicked kings. All the kings of Israel to the north, they were just wicked kings. So God would use other nations, superpowers, because his people would not grab a hold of the blessings that God had for them, and he'd use these other nations to bring correction, uh, correction and judgment to his people as a loving father would. So let's do a little map work, because there's four principal players. And so we have a map. To the far east is Assyria. That is the great superpower of the time. And bordering it just to the west was Syria. They weren't too happy 
about the fact that Assyria was rising to power with such great strength, conquering much of the known world. You have uh, Israel and Judah, the two nations, God's people divided. So the tension is this. Syria looked to Assyria, realizing they were in trouble, and they made an alliance with the nation of Israel, thinking as smaller nations, perhaps we could repel the great superpower to drive them off, keep them away. But the problem was Judah. What would they do? And they were to our back. So Syria and Israel, the armies formed an alliance, and they marched south to the borders of Judah. And King Ahaz, the king of Judah at the time, had to make a decision. He had three choices, three options. Option one, he could align with Israel and Syria and form one coalition. Perhaps the small nations would be strong enough. Option two, he could reach out to Assyria and form a relationship with them. Option three, which was what God's desire was, that's what Isaiah 7 and 8 really capture, was this, do nothing. Sit, rest, be patient, wait on the Lord, and trust in the Lord. So what does he do? Well, he seeks counsel. He seeks advice. What should I do? Isaiah chapter 8. We'll pick up at verse 18. I'll put it on the screen. Again, it's the CSB. You can follow along. He says, this is Isaiah speaking, here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So Isaiah's here. He's literally got his two children with him. And I'm here to give you the word of the Lord. Now, when they say to you, it's as though his children are actually speaking to him. It's like his children were saying, inquire of mediums and spiritists who would chirp and mutter. Shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? It's like the kids were turning to Isaiah and saying, Dad, why would Ahaz seek guidance and counsel from the pagans? Worldly advice, kind of listening to the murmurs on the street when they have you. You're a prophet of God. He should speak to you. It says, verse 20, go to God's instruction and testimony. And if they do not speak according to his word, there will be no dawn for them. And so Ahaz sought advice from the mediums and the spiritists. And he formed an alliance with Assyria. And look what the net result of that is. Verse 21. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their God. And so Ahaz sought direction and instruction from other places. He went his own way. He followed his own desires and passions, not following the word of his Lord. And what does he do? He blames God. He shakes his fist at God. Isn't that what people do? He says they will look toward the earth. People are only going to see distress and darkness and the gloom of affliction, and they'll be driven into thick darkness. And guess what happens? He forms that alliance with Assyria, and Assyria moves. They move west. They conquer Damascus, the capital of the city. They kill the king of Syria. Assyria is coming, people. They plow into Israel, coming from the north, pressing south. Eventually, the king of Israel is killed, and the nation is made is annexed to them. People are exported and shipped out, and Ahaz is turned into a puppet king before the king 
of Assyria. Ahaz, what did you want? What were you trying to do? What was your hopes for Judah? What did you really long for and really desire? Was it, was it just to maintain your kingdom? To get a bigger palace? Was it to have more vineyards and more chariots and, and a greater army? No, what you really wanted, Ahaz, and we only find it in the Lord, is hope. It's peace. What you wanted was rest and justice and, 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 and this idea that everything would be all right. And yet God is so good because in the midst of this national crisis, in this turning their back on the Lord, God is a God of grace. That's Isaiah chapter 9. And so Isaiah 9, 1 opens with this. It's a nation on the brink, and God gives them hope. He says in verse 1, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed will not be like that of the former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. Isaiah is talking to the people. When I read this stuff, like I'm doing my Bible devotions, I hit a verse like this, and I'm like, man, this is when reading the Bible's hard. (laughs) Right? Like this is just when it's not fun, and I'm trying to be a faithful student, and I don't understand what he's talking about. Well, our history lesson now will become a little bit of a geography lesson. Let me just give you a little bit of background. Naphtali, Zebulun, um, if you want to fact check, you can pull out your phones or your iPads and pull up a map of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those are the two northernmost tribes. Those are the ones that border the north to Syria. Those are the ones that when us Syria came, they just plowed right through the land. That's a tough assignment. Like when they were assigned to be the people in that northern region, no one probably really wanted that land. Why? Because you were always bordering. You were always at odds with your heathen foes. You are always at war. There was always syncretism. Other cultures and, and pagan religions pressing into them. It was a tough, tough assignment. And yet God's promise to them is that in the future, I will bring honor. He says, I'm going to bring honor to the way of the sea. That's a transcontinental highway. It doesn't even exist at the time Isaiah is actually writing this. Um, to the land east of the Jordan, that's what in the New Testament is called the Decapolis. That's where um, the garrison demoniac filled with legion had those demons cast out and the swine ran into the sea, right? And he became the first missionary to the Decapolis, taking the gospel to all those Gentiles. And then also to Galilee of the nations. That's that northern region around the Sea of Galilee. That's, that's where Jesus grew up. That's Nazareth. Specifically, that's the area of Capernaum. Whatever it is, Isaiah says, honor's going to come out of that place. But then he moves forward. And he gets to those verses that we love so dearly and make so much sense. Verse 2. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. People under the shadows of the Assyrian Empire, they needed light. They needed a light that would dawn. They needed hope. Verse 3. He says, you've enlarged the nation and you've increased its joy. Well, how? Why is joy going to be increased? Because the people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time. Well, what is that? That's a, that's, that's, that's a joy, fun, and blessing. Because once a year we have this harvest and we celebrate at the joy of blessing and prosperity that God gives us 
what we want and what we need. They will rejoice as they have rejoiced when dividing spoils of war. It's the language of war. It's the language of victory. Isaiah is telling them there's going to be joy in the defeat of evil. This is sounding good, people. We like this. Isaiah 9, verse 4, For you've shattered their oppressive yoke, and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. And the people would know that he's making two references. They would hear two Older Testament stories in that. They'd hear the story of Moses freeing the people, God leading his people out of Exodus, out of Egypt on the Exodus. And they'd hear the story of, uh, of Gideon from Judges, and Gideon is 300 Benjamites that fought against the 32,000 Midianites and won. And God sends the message that the little things of God and the weak things of God are greater than the strongest things of man. Verse 5, For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. The logic of the verse is this, the lesser presumes the greater. So if the garments and the boots are burned, that means the shields and the swords and the spears have done away. There'll be no more war. He's speaking about a time of peace. And then Isaiah speaks in Ahaz and in the people of Judah and, and actually speaking to all of Israel, to be honest with you, they hear the big promise. They hear the big one, the light that has dawned. What is that light that's dawning out of darkness? Verse 6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, its prosperity will never end. He'll reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on. And the zeal, the passion, the jealousy, the the all-consuming fire of the Lord of army or the Lord of hosts He's going to accomplish this. God is going to make all of this happen. And then there was one giant collective corporate sigh of relief as the people of Judah saw and heard God stepping in on their behalf. Isaiah breathes life into his people for a child will be born to us. And he was because Ahaz had a child, and his name was Hezekiah. And if you read 2 Kings, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, you know Hezekiah is one of the most righteous kings of Judah. He brings real reform. He brings real change. He brings real worship back to the Lord. They repel Assyria at the walls of Jerusalem. God blesses his people through Hezekiah. And then Hezekiah dies, and he has a son, and his son is Manasseh. And if you read your Old Testament, you know this. Manasseh is one of the most wicked, cruel kings in the days of Israel, in the days of Judah, and the reforms that his father had instituted get reversed, and everything changes. And in three short generations, It spirals downward, and something far worse than Assyria happens. It's called Babylon. And so Judah, God's people, fall. Jerusalem, sieged, sacked, burned, 
razed to the ground. Its people are murdered and exported. And now Israel, like the nation of Israel, as we think of God's promises to um, Abraham, right in Genesis 12 and 15, is like stars in the sky and sand on the seashore and the promise of, of the land. The nation of Israel that Samuel placed the king on the throne and there would be a, a king on the throne of David forever. That Israel is never the same again. Folks, this was a real prophecy. This was a real man of God. He, he was speaking to a specific time and a specific people in a specific place. Do you hear the tension? Like, do you see the problem? Do you see the issue? Everything promised in Isaiah 9, it didn't come true. It didn't happen. Because this is what the people heard. Now, verse 3 says, enlarging of the nations. There ain't no enlarging of the nations. Think about it. Israel never grew again. It went down. Increased in joy. I don't think it was joy. There ain't no joy. What's joyful about being conquered by people? Their reality wasn't verse 4 at all. They would say, my life is shattered. I am under an oppressive yoke. I feel trampled and, and bloodied, right? Burned as fuel for the fire. They might actually say, God might be wonderful. God might be almighty. He might be everlasting, but I ain't seeing no Prince of Peace. It just isn't happening. Listen to verse 7 alone. It says, The dominion will be vast. No, it's not, it's gone. Says prosperity will never end. I don't think so. That's not how I think of prosperity. Reigning on the throne of David never was again. There's no king on a throne of David today that you see that we know of. Kingdom? Hardly. So where's the justice? Like, where's the righteousness that Isaiah is talking about? Where's this zeal, right? The consuming fire of the Lord. What's going on? What's happening with the text? Did God get his message mixed up? Or did he have like something wrong in his mind? Or he had the wrong nation? Did God, it was actually the wrong people? Like, oops, I meant them? Or did God lie? Did God change his mind? That's a very real tension in the text. You know, the funny thing is when I wrestle and think about this and read this. It has a familiar echo. In some way, it sort of sounds like my life and some of the things that I experience and some of the things that are going on with me. Well, we need to step out of the classroom of history and geography. We need to step into a different classroom. It's the classroom of grammar. And so when you go to seminary, at least the one I went to, they teach you the the best way to translate and understand a scripture is the grammatical historical method. And history is the context that helps us understand. And the grammatical part is, why is the author using the words that they're using? Why is he using the grammar that he's using? And when we do that, it answers the questions. It solves the tension. Folks, something really, really special is happening in Isaiah 9. And so let's step in the classroom one more time, just 75 seconds, maybe two minutes worth of explanation, and it's called this, the prophetic perfect. It's a grammatical thing. I have the definition. I, you can even write it down if you have enough time. I don't know if I'll slow down long enough. 
It's a literary technique used in the Bible to describe future events that are so absolutely certain to happen that they're referred to in the past tense as if they've already happened. So we could read it in English and shoot right past this thing. And it's too bad. That's when we just love those little commentaries or we can come to church and someone can just tell us it's there. But it, 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 it's, it's such a beautiful thing. So the prophetic perfect, it's timeless truth with a view to a promise. It's truth that cares far less about the time of the event and far more about the kind of event that happens. And it's in Isaiah 9. It oozes with it. So Isaiah isn't speaking simply in time about a war, though there was a war. And Isaiah isn't speaking only about a king back then, though there was a king back then. And he isn't speaking about a child. He's prophesying about the child. And so Isaiah isn't only speaking when he says that the great light that has dawned, it's not only for the nation of Israel. It's for all people. Folks, Isaiah is speaking to you. He's speaking to you. He's speaking about our situation, our condition, our circumstances, the war that we're living in and that we're waging, that we live oppressed and distressed and in darkness and in gloom. And he's giving us hope. He's giving us the promise of peace because it's our prince of peace. Isaiah is speaking about Jesus. We know that. Listen to, listen to chapter 8, uh, verses 21 and 22 again. Just listen to it as I read it to you, but I'll personalize it. It says, I'm going to wander through the land, dejected and hungry, and when I'm famished, right, I become enraged. And looking upward, I, I curse my king and my God. Isn't that what we do? We make our own choices and decisions, and, and we think we know what's best and what's better. And, and so we make those decisions. When life doesn't work out and it's a disaster and a mess because of circumstance that I choose, what do we do? Oh, we raise our fist at God. Proverbs 19 says that a person's own foolishness leads him astray, yet his heart rages against the Lord. It says, I look towards the earth and I see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And I'll be driven into thick darkness. It's the effect of sin in our lives. And it impacts the world around us. But we don't stop there. Isaiah gives us hope, verse, chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he's going to bring honor to the way of the sea and to the land east of the Jordan, to Galilee of the nations. And that's a hard verse, and our Bible study hits the brakes. But that's good, because, because we should love this verse. This is a great verse. You guys ever play the matching game? You know, where you put all the cards out on the table, and you flip one over, and then you randomly pick another one, you flip it over, and you hope the cards match. And you're playing against your four and five-year-old, and you know you're going to lose, because you always do. Because somehow they remember this stuff, and you're like, I can't even remember what I did yesterday, kind of thing. Okay, and so um, you flip the card, and then eventually you do make that match, and you get really excited, don't you? 
It's such an exciting moment. I got a match, and it works. And so I read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. I flip this card, and I go, where is that match? I've seen that before. Where is that? And you flip the card over, and you go, there it is. It's Matthew 4. If you want to turn there, I'll even, well, I'll tell you when to put it on the screen. Matthew 4, verse 23. It says, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. It's the region where he starts to do his ministry. Why is he doing this? So if I flip the card over and I rewind to verse 12. Matthew 4, verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, he left Nazareth, went to live in Capernaum by the sea, it's starting to sound familiar, in the region of Zebulun, and in Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. It was a tough land. Why? Because that is where Assyria crashed through the borders. That's where it all fell apart. It all started there. But Jesus was there to fulfill. Verse 15, here it is. I flip the card. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the, sh- in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned from then on. Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. Let's talk about bringing honor back to a land. How about that's where Jesus came from? How about that's where he began his ministry? How about that's where the gospel gained roots and came forward? It was out of this land that was so wicked, it was conquered, but one day Jesus' ministry, Jesus himself, would come from that place. And then Isaiah continues to talk to you and me. He says, verse 2, the people walking in darkness, here it is, the prophetic perfect, have seen a great light. The light, prophetic perfect, has dawned on those living in the darkness. It's though you could speak of it so certainly that it would come true. Verse 3, he's talking about enlarging a nation, increasing joy, the blessing of harvest. Let's talk about the greatest blessing, Jesus, right? Our Savior, who defeats an enemy, the spoils of war. How about death? The greatest enemy of all times. Jesus defeats that enemy on the cross. Isaiah writes this 700 years before Jesus even walks the face of the earth. And it's like he knows. Verse 4, our oppressive yoke, which is our slavery to sin, what verse 4 talks about, that stuff is gone. It's like the matching game. We flip this, verse 4, and then I go to Galatians 5.1 when Paul tells us it's for freedom that Christ has set you free, so don't be burdened again by that yoke of slavery. Wait, there's two cards that match. Because Jesus speaks about it in Matthew 11, right? What's his, bur- or his yoke light? like? The burden is easy and light. Then he speaks about Midian, which is Gideon, the 300 that defeat the 3,200. And I flip this card, and it's 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 25 says, God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Verse 27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Isaiah 9, 5, there's no more fighting. There's no more war. The battle is won. Our foe has been defeated on the cross. The lion will lie down with the lamb. And then we reach that pinnacle moment, the the apex, 
the apogee of his encouragement and his word that he speaks to us when he's saying, we have seen a great light and this light has dawned and what is that dawning of the light for you and for me? It is for a child, prophetic perfect. A child will be born for us. A son in the perfect will be given to us and the government will be perfect on his shoulders and he in the perfect will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father and prince of peace and verse 7 is just truth in light of the perfect of jesus his dominion will be vast his prosperity will never end it's true he will reign on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever and the zeal the consuming fire of the Lord of armies, he has and will continue to accomplish this in our life. Friends, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So God didn't lie. He wasn't confused or misled or misguided, but through the prophet Isaiah, he spoke a message which was a Christmas message. The Christian message. It's the message of this book and it's one of hope and it's one of rest and justice and peace so what do you really want what do you really desire because god provides it for you and what we really want and what we really need is a savior it's a messiah and a king and ours came born as a baby he is the prince of peace And when Jesus leaves, he says, peace, I leave you. God knows your situation. He knows your circumstances. He knows the condition of your heart. And he's aware of your reality. And yet he is fully committed, ultimately, to the eradication of that stuff. If you receive the gift, the gift of Jesus Christ. It's Isaiah 9. It's verse 2. It's the people walking in darkness. They have, we have seen a great light. For unto us this child will be born. A son will be given to us, and he will be called Jesus. He's our Prince of Peace. Let's pray. This season we might be reminded that you are everything that we've ever wanted and that we desire. Lord, life may be in crisis, we may feel turmoil, sorrow, pain, but you are hope, you are peace, you are joy, you are our life. And so thank you that you are committed to us, your people, as you brought the greatest gift in the world. Jesus is our Prince of Peace, and we worship you this day and this season. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.